we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. Welcome to another exciting episode of Gratuitous Sex and Violence, the show where, by the power of sex and violence, <laughs> I have the power! <laughs> it, it is a very potent power, that of sex and violence. Yeah, you got the whiff of sex and violence coming off of me right now? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's real pungent. Real, real pungent. <laughs> my name is Orlando, and I'm joined by my guest, co-host, and roommate, Ned. How's it going, Ned? Oh, it goes. It always goes. Are you ready to watch another schlocky masterpiece today? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, uh, you know, something, uh, you know, restrained. Something, uh, <laughs> you know, grounded. We never go that route here. Oh, uh, well, one of these days. We're <laughs> watching, I don't know if you could tell from my themed opening, mm-hmm. um, but we're watching Masters of the Universe. Oh. Which is a 1987 American superhero science fantasy action film. Just a lot of genre packed into this movie. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. The best Um, ones are. This is directed by Gary Goddard, and the film stars Dolph Lundgren, Frank Langella, John Cipher, Chelsea Field, Billy Barty, Courtney Cox, Robert Duncan McNeil, James Tolkien, and Meg Foster. This movie is based on the Mattel toy line of the same name, which later became a cartoon series of the same name, Masters of the Universe. And it brings the story of two teenagers who meet the mighty warrior He-Man, played wonderfully by Dolph Lundgren, Mm -hmm. who arrives on Earth from the planet Eternia and now goes on a mission to save the universe from the villainous Skeletor, who is played by... Frank Langella. Oh, man. His evil nemesis. Oh, man. Have you ever seen this movie, Ned? Uh, I have not seen this movie. I've uh, heard of it. Uh, I I feel like I've probably heard the name at some point. The thing is, like, I, I even, like, I'm vaguely familiar with the cartoons, mm-hmm. but even the cartoons I didn't necessarily know by the name of Masters of right. the Universe. I only knew it as the He-Man cartoon, right. basically. Yeah. Um, because He-Man is just such a presence <laughs> over the whole thing. Like, his muscles just, like, you know, suck all the energy out of right. anything else worth considering. Now, the, the basic concept of the cartoon, for those of you guys who don't know it, is that um, the main character is this guy called Adam who is a prince of Eternia. And Adam is the protector of the universe. Yeah. And he lives in a castle um, on the mountain called Grayskull, which is like a magical mountain. Um, And there's a sorceress there that gives gives Grayskull its power, um, or she takes power from... I'm not exactly sure she takes power from Grayskull. But anyway, she's like the the Obi-Wan Kenobi character who helps He-Man. And He-Man, whenever he's faced with danger, mostly in the form of his evil nemesis Skeletor, yeah. who tries to take him down in various ways once an episode, yeah. he yields his magic sword 
and he says, by the power of Grayskull, I have the power. And he turns into He-Man, yeah. who looks exactly the same, except he's more naked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, is that it's this whole transformation thing, and they 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 really make a point of showing, like, in the voice, like how transformed right. he is. Yeah. But like he looks exactly the same. Yeah, he he's does. just the same amount of ripped, only like he he just is wearing a very slinky little mm-hmm. uh, little number there. Um, and he has this cat who becomes Battle Cat. And uh, he has friends that help him. He have he has Man at Arms, who's a soldier. Um, we have uh, Tila, who is the Man at, Man at Arms' his daughter, and sometimes love interest of email. Well, he's never love interest, but it's kind of implied that maybe there's something there. Yeah. I don't know. It's, well, there's a lot of like really veiled eroticism throughout this cartoon. Yeah, that's the thing. We we watched an episode a couple days ago, and and yeah, I was actually very shocked mm-hmm. at like how many gratuitous. Uh, Gratuitous views of his uh, <laughs> lower body, of, of his yeah, <laughs> and pecs, <laughs> yeah, of his pecs and of his and of his butt. Um, it, it, yeah, there was it was all very gratuitous. He's also uh, in the cartoon. He's accompanied by uh, a sidekick, a floating sidekick called Orko, who is the comic relief, and he also has a little bit of magic. Yeah. And Skeletor has his like bunch of like evil henchmen too. Number one of which is Evil Lynn, who is like just like this badass like lady warrior that helps Skeletor out. Dope. And he has a bunch of minions. Dope. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- it was really... I'm, I'm excited that Frank Langella plays Skeletor because I love Frank Langella. Frank Langella is awesome. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm even more pumped now. <laughs> uh, now, I feel like this this cartoon... Well, first of all, you know, we have to talk about how it came from... <laughs> From toys, it was the toys were designed first. Yeah, and then they just created a show. Yeah. to justify the existence of these toys. I mean, I think that's that's pretty cool. I mean, uh, that's pretty much the same route as uh, Transformers, right? Pretty like, much, yeah. right? Right. Transformers got a, ch- a cartoon, they yeah. got a film for happened a lot. Happened so. a lot back in the day. Yeah, and uh, and then they made a movie. This movie, um, which I know we've talked a lot about on this show about movies that <laughs> are. Not as good as the sum, or are, are, are better than the sum of its parts. Like you know, okay. like like we're like, oh, obviously this is a bad movie, but the ideas are really strong. Like we yeah. had a lot of movies like this. This is like the opposite of that. Okay. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of cool shit in this movie, but the movie as a whole as a whole just doesn't live up to <laughs> the cool shit that's in the movie. Okay. Okay, so that's going to be interesting to to talk about. Franklin Jella being one of them because I'm really interested to to dis- dissect his performance in okay. this movie. Okay. Uh, another thing to look out for this movie is is this is one of the early examples from Hollywood, certainly in a superhero movie, of a post credit scene. Okay. So we will be watching this movie through the end of the credits so that you can see. Nice. One of the, an early example of Ooh. a post-credits scene. Ooh, <laughs> the, a direct inspiration on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Clearly. Maybe we'll see. We'll oh. see. So, with that being said, uh, oh, I guess like uh, another thing is how this mixes genres. So yeah, it's science fantasy, but there's like obviously there's elements of sword and sorcery, which we kind. This is basically like Deathstalker in space, like Deathstalker yeah. with sci-fi. Yeah, that's the vibe. That's the vibe I'm picking up just from how you're describing. Yeah. It. So uh, I'm I'm excited for that. All right, you ready to watch uh, Masters of the Universe? 
Uh, yeah, as ready as I can be, I think. If you guys out there want to watch this movie with us, it is available to stream for free if you have a subscription for Stars, or if you have the Stars add-on on Amazon or Hulu. If you don't have a subscription to Stars, then you can just rent it. And, um, you know, it's it's a it's a schlocky 80s movie. Who doesn't want to rent that? <laughs> Indeed, indeed. (laughs) All right, guys, we're going to break to watch this movie. Then we'll be right back. We'll play some trivia and we'll discuss this movie at length. We'll see y'all on the other side. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. The power where we're, we're here, feet firmly planted on the ground. So we just finished watching Masters of the Universe. We did. What are your first reactions? <laughs> um, it, it's interesting. It, it's a clunky one. Mm-hmm. It's definitely clunky, like the you know those. It, it reminds me most of the uh, the the kind of, you know, the low fantasy films that we had uh, dipped our toes into. Like Deathstalker, like Deathstalker Warrior and the Sorceress. Yeah, like it definitely seems to mostly... It's like a higher budget version of Yeah, that. it's like it's like they got a little more funding, <laughs> right. but they've got the same sort of just like hammy of, of all hams, like just like we're just gonna have a really fucking stacked mm-hmm. dude swing a big sword around mm-hmm. and that's gonna be our basis of heroics. Right. Like, that's where we're working from. Um, this one definitely had uh, quite a few fun things going on in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really loved our villain, Skeletor. Yeah. Frank Langella gives a fantastic performance, yeah. even with like what I'm sure are ridiculous and possibly painful like prosthetics. Yeah. Like, on the face, he still manages to give this like really captivating, charismatic performance that definitely kept me interested. Um, and we, uh, I, I, I made it a point that we watch a cartoon, uh, one of the episodes from the cartoon before this. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I was interested in you watching it was so that you could compare cartoon Skeletor. With Frank Langella's Skeletor. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, yeah, because like there are some things from the cartoon that definitely get translated right. into the film. Definitely, as far as like just that Skeletor has it out on a very personal level mm-hmm. for He Man, and right. they they do have this kind of big rivalry going on. Um, but I appreciated the gravitas that uh, Frank Langella gave it. I think mm-hmm. Frank Langella's you know vocal work suits the character, makes him a lot more impo- mm-hmm. you know imposing. And you know, less of a <laughs> right. Like none of none wasn't of that. a sniveling idiot. Yeah, not so much <laughs> of a sniveling idiot. Like you, you one, you can kind of see like his impatience with his lackeys. That right. like they they do a decent enough job of making it look like yeah, maybe he's the villain, so he's not always going to get away with it. But he also is kind of aware of where the shortcomings in his operation are coming right, from yeah, too. It's true. So they they actually do a pretty good job of like keeping him as a somewhat imposing uh, villain to work mm-hmm. against. Um, the rest of the film is pretty clunky. It does have, like, a pretty solid structure. I think at this point the film is, you know, it's borrowing from some examples does, of the very best derivative. now. Like, yeah. it's a very derivative film of films like, 
you know, Back to the Future and Star Wars, right. which, which are also derivative films in their own right. That's but true. Like, it's but, all derivative. But, but those films, like, were, you know, examples of perfecting how the, the, the mix of influences mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So this is now mixing those mixes of influences right. even more. And uh, so, you know, the mix is a little off here and there. Yeah, it's, it's, um, not, it's not making it its own thing it's like just using the elements because they're familiar yeah yeah one i think it's like it's interesting to talk about this film and we may we may go more deep into this as like something of a precursor to what the marvel films actually become too because i think that like i i was seeing a lot of marvel's thor in this Mm -hmm. too a lot of what that film would kind of ultimately become and their sort of approach to like you know to like having these like larger than life heroes, but also having them interact with Earth characters mm-hmm. as well, and um, so so like the, it's interesting to kind of see to see an early example of that kind of approach to like yeah, there's these like mega huge heroes and villains duking it out, um, but also then trying to inject like human relatable stories yeah. into the mix as well. And there's a fish out of water element. Yeah, there's like a bit of a fish out of water element. Um, I think like in this film, it doesn't quite get as successful as most of the Marvel examples get because there's this sense of like indifference between like the uh, the Eternian characters and the humans. Mm-hmm. They mostly seem to like chill on Earth for a bit, do what they need to do. And then, you know, there's like some effort on the Eternians part to like help the humans out. But right. like they also also got them into this horrible situation in the mm-hmm. first place, getting them mixed up in the crossfire and all that stuff. And so it, it, it sort of feels like the humans and the Eternians mostly stay on their own arc tracks. There's no, yeah, it's true. there's no way that like the heroes from afar ever necessarily learn that much about themselves from the humans. And likewise, the experience for the humans doesn't really have that much of a foundational impact on who they are in their journeys. Like they mainly just kind just of along for the ride. They're kind of basically just along for the ride. And, and I think part of that is that the, you know, the universe that they inhabit, obviously I feel like this movie, like everyone is from a different planet and then they're transported here. Whereas even though Thor is a similar concept in that universe, there are still superheroes that exist on Earth. Well, yeah, exactly. That, so that the humans good. are familiar with the concept of these powerful <laughs> beings, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they're more they're more readily emotionally invested from that perspective. That is true. And also yeah. in Thor's case, they connected by giving him like a, a love story to kind of ground him to Earth as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now this movie, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I mean, this is the movie that. If if you if you ever come across someone who asks you this question, hey, can Frank Langella act? This is the movie to show them because yes, he has been in better movies. But can he act? <laughs> yes. He can I, act. I, I was about to have some serious issues. I was gonna be like, wait, can he 
I mean, do we not need to look at like the rest of his filmography and his stage work? Like, yo, let's not be disrespecting here. But yes, the, I, I totally take your meaning on that. The, I mean, yes. the man is just so good at acting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's so good. Well, and also, like I was saying to this to you during the movie, that this makes me all the more furious at um <laughs> Ben Kingsley at, at Ben Kingsley from and Blood, Blood Rain, Rain yeah. because like no effort like yeah like he he didn't have he didn't have skull prosthetics no. to work around um and yet and yet he it's so clear that he didn't seem to invest the same level of just like care and 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 just you know just like finding something to root himself mm-hmm. personally into the role to give it just to, you know just, right yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think the, the these two stand in even bigger contrast. And again, I, I definitely think Blood Rain is much more of a failure as a whole, right. like on an artistic yeah. level. So there are many things tearing down. <laughs> That's there, correct. Like, yeah, it's basically like a building tearing itself down from the inside. But if a you're bit. if you're an but actor like, that has that ability to transform yourself, yeah. I mean, Ben Kingsley, yeah, he's been in amazing he, movies. Yeah, he's and done amazing. You're work. paid to be this character. Why not? just like take a fucking chunk out of it yeah yeah so so yeah definitely seeing frank langella totally nail this uh made made me think of that as well even more so like man what a what a missed opportunity this was one of my first movie memories ever in my life yeah watching masters of the universe that's Um, cool yeah that's real cool yeah I, i remember watching it on on cable uh when i was really young and um, for that reason, it's it has it holds up a very special place in, yeah. in my heart. I I have a lot of fun wa- every time I see it, and I've seen it many times. Yeah. Um, and it's it's one of those movies where, similar to like what I was seeing with sudden with um, with uh, sudden death, uh, you kind of have to tap into like that ten year old mentality to really enjoy it. Yeah, it's definitely like it's, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's a pretty juvenile movie. Like right. it's it's pretty simple, it's pretty clear cut. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's a lot of pretty youthful hijinks mm-hmm. for the most part. So there's there's not a lot of like deep subtextual storytelling mm-hmm. going on or anything. Where like is that. it? Like it's real. It's pretty much it's pretty much just like a fun zippy adventure right. from beginning to end. Right. And and that's fine. Like there are plenty of movies that do that great. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't necessarily hold that against this one. I think well you know, I the action you know, well, we, we've got room to talk about we, the We'll action, talk about that later, but, but yeah, some of the but, action is, is more successful than others. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about how, so this movie, when it came out, was critically panned. Yeah. Um, it's still not held in, in high regard critically for obvious reasons. Yeah. But it has become, over the years, one of the most beloved cult films yeah. of the 1980s. A lot of people, like, uh, especially people who grew up with the He-Man cartoon and uh, and uh, and the toys, um, they either love it or hate it, but they at least mention it affectionately. Um, uh, one of the reasons I think, and and I think that, so, Chris Eggerson from Hitflix, he kind of hits on this in an article identifying the film's campy positive qualities. He called it an objectively bad film with a big heart, and I think that really is the key to the success of this movie and how the longevity that it's portraying beyond just like Frank Langella being awesome is that the movie really does have a huge heart. 
I would agree with that, mm-hmm. definitely. Even from the score. Like, it's that very chipper, very, right. like, optimistic, enthusiastic type of, you know, space fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there there is a lot to love in terms of the tone of the film. I think I think the, the film actually does have um, incredibly good tonal consistency. Right. Like, I think that... They actually do a really good job of like maintaining a very specific quality yeah. to to the tone from beginning to end, no matter whether they're on Earth or on Eternia. Right. Like the the they, production is actually pretty good, especially again compared to yeah. those schlocky <laughs> movies that we yeah, saw. Yeah, which do have a lot more tonal inconsistency. Right. So um so I, I do think that like that alone already kind of makes this like a better viewing package that Mm -hmm. like there's there's a sense that even if like the dialogue is clunky and the storytelling is a little clunky and the action is certainly very right um that like uh, a a, a set like having a consistent sense of place and a consistent sense of like this is the universe that we're inhabiting and that Mm -hmm. we're playing within like all of that actually goes towards you know, making for a, a cohesive viewing experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I definitely give the film props for that. Um, and this was Gary yeah. Goddard's directorial debut. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of their directorial debuts uh, on this podcast, some more successful than others. Yeah. Uh, this one is not like one of the better ones, but I don't also no. don't, I also don't think that it was a complete, uh, like he, he seems like a pretty competent filmmaker from what I, from this overall like yeah. some, the shot placements and the way that the camera moves it's it's all pretty you know keeps it all pretty like you said zippy and for the most part pretty riveting I yeah think. definitely I, I would agree with that I think for the most part it's it's pretty competently shot I think that some of the action sequences start to get a little messier there's right. there's a little more difficulty following some of the action that I found so so that's sort of where I start to knock some of my points yeah. a little bit. In, in terms of the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, yes, I definitely agree with that, that it's it's mostly, you know, pretty pretty decently shot and now, pretty decently composed. Now, many viewers um, have have actually, when they compared this cartoon, they, they talk about how the movie is different from the cartoon in a lot of specific ways. First of all, we don't get to see He-Man as Prince Adam ever. He's always He-Man. He doesn't transform from Prince Adam. Um, he doesn't have his cat, Battle Cat, or Cringer, which becomes Battle Cat. That's not in the movie. Um, also, the little flying guy, Orko, is not in the movie. That was a big point of contention with a lot of fans. Um, yeah. He's sort of replaced by Billy Barty's character, Gwildor. Uh, but here's the thing that's interesting, uh, of interest from the movie's perspective, is even though viewers and a lot of reviewers compared to the cartoon, the movie is actually not a direct adaptation of the cartoon. The movie is based on the toys themselves and was in development before Filmation's cartoon actually debuted. Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, and Filmation, the, the, the animation house that, that produced and developed the cartoon, had nothing to do with the movie. Okay. And in the in the toys there is no Prince Adam and He-Man, there's just He-Man. Yeah, I mean and and honestly I I noticed that there wasn't any of the business with Prince Adam. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't think that was to the film's detriment at right, all. Right. Like I think, you know, we we were talking about kind of how confusing it was. Yeah. There's very little discernible difference. difference. Mm-hmm. There's like not that much to make of 
the transformation process at all right. other than maybe get stronger and more naked but like yeah like that that was otherwise kind of puzzling and mm-hmm. didn't need explanation so yeah i think for the perp i think yeah like for this to kind of go that route of just like no it's just you man yeah i mean yeah it, it, it sounds like a thing that they added for the cartoons and right exactly so um yeah, I, uh, that's that's interesting that this is mo- that this is basically just a direct adaptation for the toys, and that's and that's interesting that they made the decision to both license it out for a cartoon right. adaptation and a film adaptation, basically at the same time, <laughs> completely independent of each other, right. with no you know crossover anything mm-hmm. like that. So that's that's puzzling. That's mm-hmm. puzzling decision making. Maybe that's just you know. The, the early days of franchise and then yeah. obviously in today's era of everything would be like, everything is yeah. Disney like you know it they would be still supervised and micromanaged would, yeah there would definitely be much more <laughs> this would not happen normally alright let's play today. some Masters of the Universe trivia yes indeed are you ready to play how do you feel I have the power ah, that's what I like to hear uh, we'll see <laughs> Um, as always, this is going to be five questions and a bonus. The questions go in order from least difficult to most difficult. And the grand prize is bragging rights. Mm-hmm. We're starting you nice and easy. Indeed. What is the name of Gwildor's invention, which is the film's MacGuffin? Ah, uh, it is the, the, the key or the cosmic key. Correct. The cosmic key. Or the key would be also, but it's more specifically... The Cosmic Key. Indeed. Uh, Which is, like you said, it's kind of like a DeLorean-type device. Not as cool as a DeLorean. No. But that little trinket that they built for the movie is actually pretty neat, I think. Yeah, good design, good design, especially with the way it expands and right. has like, and it has like pretty, pretty well functioning spinning fork things on A it, total so. of three working cosmic key props were built for the film, uh, each personally constructed by Richard Edlund, who uh, is he, we know him. He made the uh, the special effects for uh, Ghostbusters. Oh, very um, cool. And also for Fright Night, which we saw on this Ooh, podcast. Okay, okay, that's some that's some good design. So he built that. Now the props were extremely extremely fragile and broke down easily so a special team of prop technicians had to be on hand at all times to repair the damage during filming and uh this they're actually some of the more expensive pieces of memorabilia from the film uh as of 2012 they're valued at six thousand dollars each Oh, very interesting. Yeah, it's a good it's a good prop. Like it it, it fits the film's tone very well. It, it actually it's a good thing. Uh, it reminds me of Richard Edlund's work in Ghostbusters because it kind of has that same like real world um, tactileness yeah. of the the like the ghost catchers. That- yeah, yeah, a little bit. Well, and also too, like I mean, it it, it shows like what a good eye he has for like. Um, you know, sort of capturing the origins of things because I think right. like Ghostbusters um, sort of, you know, prop design is so brilliant because of how like sort of thrown together it all looks. Yeah, that's like, true. By, you know, like, oh, this is just a bunch of, you know, guys who just got their PhD. Right. Like, you know, just just put it, putting it together on the cheap. And whereas, it has like, like a handyman quality to yeah, it. Like yeah, yeah. Whereas, like like whereas this device definitely has a much more otherworldly right. quality, but not so much that other people wouldn't constantly be mistaking it for a Japanese synthesizer. <laughs> a Japanese so, synthesizer. Um. Which leads me to question number two. 
Uh-huh. Now, Charlie and Kevin both deduced that the cosmic key is of Japanese origin, but Detective Lubick su- suspects it might come from which country? Ah, he suspects that it might be Russian. <laughs> Russia! Because it's the 80s and therefore the Cold War the must, must be referenced in some way. Now, uh, James Tolkien to me is another like positive thing in this movie. Yeah, he, um, he, he, he does that one thing, all right. He does that one thing very well. He's in Back to the Future. We know him better as uh, as the... The principal. The principal. Yeah. principal. Is it Principal Skinner? No, I it's forget. not Principal Skinner. That's from Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, I, I forget his name. But Yeah, uh, he's a principal in Back to the Future. Um, now, a funny co- connection there. The same sound effect that was used for the entrance of the DeLorean in Back to the Future is also used in this movie when Gwildor comes crashing through the junkyard fence in his Cadillac to help He-Man. Really? That's the same sound that's effect. The same sound effect. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Oh, um, I just remembered the other... The, uh, there was the, the other notable James Token uh, role that I, I was trying to recall was um, he played uh, the officer in Top Gun as well. Right. Yeah. And he was in Dick Tracy also. Oh, cool. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and he's always playing like uh, like the, an asshole authority figure. Like yeah, said. pretty much. <laughs> um, but but he's a, I think he's a he he does that very well. Yeah, I, he does it well. One and and it's I I liked that this movie actually gave him some room to like get a little goofy, like right. that you you get you get him in different circumstances where he he has some power and authority, but then he loses a lot of right. it when he kind of is is kind of like taken hostage. Yeah. Uh, but then he ends up on the other planet. Yeah. He joins in the fight, and then he gets a castle at the end. He decides to stay behind. Yeah, which, which was a very weird twist. It a was. very weird twist for the role he usually plays right. in movies. I was like, oh, that's so weird that he's joined the good guys and now is just going to stay behind <laughs> on fantasy sci-fi world. Like, I, I, I liked that. It was so absurd, but I really liked it. Because because I, I, Kevin, the whole movie, like several times in the movie, he's like, he's like, Lubick, this is for real. Yeah. And then at the end, yeah, I guess he accepts that it's real. Yeah, of course. <laughs> More real than his old world. <laughs> uh, here comes question number three. Uh, how does Evelyn manage to get the key away from our heroes? Uh, Evelyn does so by uh, impersonating, um, I'm blanking on the character's name, but Cor- Courtney Cox's deceased mother. Julie's mom, that's correct. Yeah. Which, uh, I mean, we both, we both, you reacted to that. I, we both reacted to that. Like, that's like, uh, well, such a stupid mistake. Come on, Joe. Yeah, it just, it, 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 it strains a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that for, for a character to have suffered a loss like that, right. for her parents to be dead, and to, like, be in the midst of, like, a very real, tangible, like, you know, firefight situation, which granted is is already very absurd because right. you just learned that like there are beings from another galaxy mm-hmm. like coming to your planet. So like, yeah, you're dealing with a lot, but then to kind of like just see your mother and with all this other stuff going around to like not be able to question it right. even a little bit. That's the part that like, gets me too. Yeah, and and and. You know, I think that this movie definitely has, like, a lot of things in it that are, like, you know, really good potential for, like, you know, an improved treatment or something like mm-hmm. that. And so, like, the idea of that actually, I think, is not a bad idea. Like, yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm, well, I'm really into the idea of, like, 
the the gambit to like have her seeing her mother and talking to her mother again be like more of a long drawn out thing right. where like she, you know her mother like gets her alone and they talk to each other in but a quieter does, moment yeah but but then she doesn't know what to make of it right. or whether to trust her and then slowly her trust erodes over the period of the film resulting in her handing the device off to her in a key Wait, moment like right. that like doing something like that tension, would, yeah, yeah that would create a lot more tension and 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 also because like again you know you went to all the trouble of giving her character this like really tragic backstory but like a lot of her journey in the film doesn't really sort of grapple with that That's at true, all yeah. or even with or even with like just, just struggling her, whether her to her decide situation. to leave or stay That's her basic yeah thing. like there's yeah there's there's really yeah there's there's not a lot being done to actually address like her character's questions of like you know what do they want and what do they need right. so yeah it doesn't yeah so i agree i feel like uh yeah i, I agree with you i, I feel like the reason that that scene pulls me out, and, I, it, and it's one that doesn't work for me either, uh, is that it happens in the middle of the of the firefight. I, yeah. I do think that it's a cool idea, but it just it, first of all, it just completely like stops the pacing of the battle. Also, yeah. when you should be, I think, like ramping up the tension there as well. But uh, but yeah, I just feel like if it if it had happened in a quieter moment, yeah. a moment where maybe Julie was more emotionally open to this happening. Yeah. But in a firefight, I I just don't believe that she would abandon her friends, especially because her boyfriend and and uh, Lubick are battling for the gun at the moment. Yeah, it's very strange that that's the moment she would choose to mm -hmm. flee, and especially at the sight of. You know, is that my mom? Like, right. What? Okay, fuck this fight going on in front of me right now. I'm gone. I mean, like, I get it. Like, it's not a good situation to be in, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. It just it that that led to too many questions. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. Uh, that that made it hard to unpack the scene. So yeah. All right, here comes question number four. You're doing great. Yeah. Three yeah. for three. I'm feeling good. Feeling the power. Now we're starting to get into the harder questions oh, here. Oh boy. Now, how many bounty hunters? Does Skeletor send to retrieve the key, and what are their names? Oh, oh, oh dear. <laughs> this is gonna be a partial credit, bad boy. Um, <laughs> all right, partial credit. Um, so there are four bounty hunters Correct. that were sent, or mercenaries, I should say. Um, and we've got Karg. Correct. We've got. Blade. Correct. And then I'm not sure what I'm not sure what lizard face David Bowie's name is, and I'm not <laughs> sure what uh, other other lizard metalhead is either. So that's as far as I got. Well, lizard face David Bowie is Kark. No, I thought Karg was the the big. Be oh wait, okay, Beast Man. Ah, there you go. Okay, three for four. <laughs> okay, that helps. Yeah. Okay, so that's Lizardface David Bowie. I thought Lizardface David Bowie, was, or no, I thought Karg was Beast Man. Mm -hmm. So that helps. Mm -hmm. Um. Do you want to just take a guess in the last one? Mm, I'm gonna say Death something. <laughs> It's death something. It is not death something. It okay. is Sawrod. Sawrod. Okay. Cool. 
I mean, Blade, at least, you know, you knew where Blade was coming from. Right. Blade throws a lot of sharp things, wields a lot of sharp things, yeah, has sharp proper. things on the face, probably lost an eye to a sharp thing. Like, you know, just Blade's very on brand. And Beastman is also very on brand. <laughs> Beastman is, is like a pinhead situation. It's like an obvious name. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, <laughs> obvious enough that I would be able to name it. <laughs> we, we can't be sure, but um, yeah. Um, Here's some trivia about our mercenary. Actually, before I say that, I want to do point out also that we're talking about the derivative stuff, and obviously there's a lot of der- derivative stuff that we get from the Star Wars movies, um, especially from Empire, I think. Yeah. And one of the things is the the mercenaries or the yeah the, the bando hunters. mercenaries definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I especially kind of was a little puzzled by the fact that they were like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna send an advanced team, so we're gonna we're gonna hire some mercenaries. We're not gonna right. risk we're not gonna like risk a formidable amount of my own troops on this effort, right? <laughs> Except that the mercenaries work as a team yeah. and also work alongside a contingent of uh, Skeletor's troops as well. Right. So it's like, uh, like, why not, like, I don't know. Like, I was puzzled by that, that the mercenaries wouldn't have just, like, spread out and done their own thing or something like that. Yeah, what like, were they working Deciding together? to cohesive, try to cohesively work as a team. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another wonky thing. Yeah. Uh, Beastman's prosthetic teeth were so large that the performer, Tony Carroll, was unable to close his mouth when in costume. After a while, he would begin to drool, filling his chin piece with saliva and weighing uh, it down. Damn. Seems pretty uncomfortable. That sounds really ugly. Uh, all three of them, like, it just seems like a very miserable experience being a henchman in this movie. The reptilian henchman, Saurad, his throat was made to expand and contract by having the performer, Pons Mar, blow into a tube that ran from his mouth to the throat of his costume. Mm. Which is a, it was a pretty it's a cool, It's bet. a cool effect. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool effect. I like that. Uh, so, and old Blade, now when, when Blade engages in He-Man... Oh, oh, with He-Man in a sword fight, he says to He-Man, I've been waiting a long time for this. And it, you actually picked up on it. In Blade's backstory, Blade lost his left eye in a fight with He-Man. Okay. Well, that's good. That's yeah. good. Um, I mean, it, I feel like that line kind of treads a little bit on the fact that Skeletor has his own line about, right. you know, fortune favors he who waits or something mm. like that. And I've waited a long time for this. So I'm like, okay, mercenary, how long have you really waited for this? Have you <laughs> have you actually put in the time and effort like Skeletor has? Because I don't think you have. Um, but, uh, you know, who's to say? So you got three-fourths of that one, which isn't bad. Yeah, which it's, isn't okay. Bad. it's okay. Because I honestly didn't think that you were going to get, like, Karg, so I'm impressed that you got Karg. Well, here's the reason I remembered Karg, was mm-hmm. because shortly after we get introduced to the mercenaries, um, we then have the scene in the high school where uh, mm. Guy leaves, and when she hears a ruckus of the portal opening, she calls out Carl's name, uh. who, who she was supposed to wait for to let into right. the building, and so I immediately was expecting, oh, well, she's waiting for Karg. Carl, and one of the mercs was named Karg, so I was expecting there to be a whole thing happen where uh, she calls out to Carl. Karg is like, what? And I don't know. That some sort of bit or, or, or heightening of danger would happen that way. But it didn't. But it was enough to keep Karg stuck in my name at least. In my head at least. So, there you go. Here's the last question. The right. final one. This happens pretty early in the movie. Okay. What's the name of the barbecue joint where Julie works? Oh, no. 
like uh, some very generic. <laughs> it is pretty type generic. Fucking name. Uh, I don't know. Chicken ribs. Chicken it's ribs. It's not chicken ribs. Okay. Although ribs and chicken are in the name. Fuck. It's a person's name. You want to guess a person's name? Because you already got chicken and ribs. Chucky Chicken and Ribs? <laughs> <laughs> You're on the right track. It's Robbie's Ribs and Chicken. Robbie's Ribs and Chicken. Okay. Well, okay. Fair. Fair. That's fair. I always thought growing up that that food actually looked pretty delicious. Yeah, it looked okay. When the attorneys okay. were like eating it. I have to say, I was not a fan of, uh, what's his name, just downing the whole thing. Oh, with that looks sauce. pretty gross. That, that was a bit. He doesn't much. know it. You have to dip it. He doesn't know. Oh, yeah. He's an alien. Uh, yeah, I'm just saying, <laughs> I think he'd be in a bit of something of a, something of a sugar coma pretty shortly. And that, that little scene there was actually, I think, one of the more successful ones with the fish out of water story that we're talking about when they're eating and they realize that they're eating animal flesh. <laughs> yeah, and, and only one of them is like, yeah, of course. Yeah, Man of War is the only one that's unfazed because he's a man of war, so yeah. you know he's been <laughs> in situations like this before. Yeah, he's he's probably had to hunt game for, right. for sustenance more, where, whereas the other two, I guess, I don't know, I guess Eternia is more of a... Eternia is a utopia. So a it's, utopia, so, so they don't eat animals. Yeah. It's barbaric. Right. So <laughs> that's, that's very interesting. All right, so um, you did pretty... You, all right, you did... Because you got, you got yeah, most... Yeah, three, three out of... Five, yeah. Three out of five solid, and then the, the fourth one you got three-fourths of. Yeah. So you got some bragging rights, but let's see. Maybe you can bring some back with uh, the bonus question. Yeah, yeah. As usual, hope. the bonus question uh, strays from the world of the film. Uh, and this is about the actress who plays Evelyn. Okay. Her name is Meg Foster. Cool. Now, Meg Foster played Holly... In another science fiction action movie, which was released the following year, what was the name of that movie? Played Holly. Mm-hmm. And if you really, really want another clue, I will give it to you. Okay. But Karen, only if Holly. you really want it. Science fiction action film would have come out in 88. Mm-hmm. I will take a clue. Okay, the clue is that we have actually seen this movie on this podcast. Science fiction action. Oh no, hang on. Hang on. Wait. Wait, what have we seen? Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. oh my god. We haven't done that much science fiction, so we I haven't. feel like. Ugh. There's only, like, few that you can even think Yeah, I know. From the 80s specifically. Yeah. And a oh. science fiction action movie. Oh, my God. From 1988. Oh, my God. Why am I... Oh. And it was one that we both really enjoyed. Oh, my God. This is killing me. <laughs> oh, my God. What is happening to my mind brain? Um, oh, 88... We enjoyed it. Oh, uh, Holly. Uh, I mean, it couldn't have been Westworld because that was too early. And, yeah, that's and, a 70s and, movie. And, yeah. Oh. Oh, fudge. Uh... I, I, I can't even... I can't even... 
Oh, I can't even bring. I can't even hate, bring it you're back. You're gonna hate yourself so I, much. I am. I am. I know it. I'm ready for the self-loathing. Lay it on me. What did I miss? They live. They live. <laughs> they live. Oh my God. No, I can see her face in that yeah. movie. No, no. Yep. Got me. Oh my god, that's awful. Yep. That's it was awful. Holly and they live. Holly and they live. So she's been a pretty good. I don't career get the bragging. I don't get the bragging rights. Let's no bragging rights. No bragging rights for me this week. Middling. <laughs> you don't get the bonus. Nicely done. That's oh. Oh, that kills me. Oh, that kills me. Now, the throne room set from Castle Grayskull was originally two large adjoining sound stages. The wall between the sets was knocked down to make one gigantic sound stage. At the time, this was the largest set Hollywood had seen in over 40 years. Yeah, I was impressed by the scale of the throne room. Mm-hmm. It looked pretty cool. It's and really cool. Yeah. It you know got... what it always reminds me of, actually? For some reason, it always reminds me of... Uh, the Temple of Doom in, in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And it just has yeah. like that same kind of scale, like large scale yeah. to it. That's interesting that they had to knock down the wall between mm-hmm. two different sound stages to make it. That's so so it was the largest it was the largest sound stage after they knocked down the wall, they mean? It was the largest set, not oh, the sound stage. Okay, cool. The largest set Hollywood had seen in over forty years. Wow, that's that's impressive. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Let's go into the first of our GSV segments. This one's called Shot, 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 Shots. We're talking about the gratuitous violence. This is a PG movie, but there's quite a bit of gratuitous violence. Yeah, there's a bit of blood going on there. If you had to guess, how many killings do we get in this movie? Ooh. How many on-screen deaths? I think it probably goes... I mean, a lot of, a lot of, yeah, a lot of troops get, get taken out. So I'm going to say it goes over the forties, mm-hmm. um, on all, with, with all, like all deaths on screen. I'm going to say somewhere between 40 and 50. That's a very good instinct. Okay. Now, I, before I give you the official answer, okay. I will say that this is a trick question. And I okay. will explain why here. Ooh, to, I you're going to kill why. me. You're going to kill me. Mattel which owned and produced the Masters of the Universe toy line, mandated early in production that He-Man, nor any other character on screen, could actually kill another person. Especially He-Man. Okay. So they made the decision to make Skeletor's troops robots. Okay, fair. So he actually kills robots, not humans. Okay. And the answer is 43. Okay, 43 robots. Right. Okay, that's cool. So you were right on the money. Okay, It's just that they weren't technically deaths. Okay, Although we don't get that explained in the movie. No, not at all. But conceptually, the the Black Stormtroopers are robots. Yeah, exactly. There's only one character who's not a robot that gets killed in the movie. Yeah, and that's that's Saw... Rod. Sawrod. Sawrod. Who, who Skeletor d- 
dispatches. Yeah. With his lightning okay. thingy. And that was a that was a bit of a memorable death moment there. That was like, pretty you know, memorable. A, very evocative of uh, the Empire Strikes Back, you yeah. know, officers throwing themselves at the mercy of the big boss and the big boss is having none of it. Also so. the uh the lightning fire is evocative of Palpatine a little bit. Yeah. Especially with like so. the robe and like, yeah. the face and all that. Yeah, very much so. Um, but yeah, that I I, I love uh, actually Fr- Frank Langella's line in that mo- when he when he says I'm not in the giving vein today. Yeah, which is actually a line that's taken from Shakespeare. It's from Richard the Third. Really? Yeah. And uh, Frank Langella uh, put it put it in the movie. It wasn't actually Good. in the script. That's good. Uh, I'm not in the given vein today. <laughs> I, I appreciate that Langella contributed some lines. I wondered, do you, do you know if the line about the loneliness of good and evil was was a, was an addition of he his? He wrote that line as well. Yeah, he I wrote. had a feeling. I had a feeling. The line was too good to uh, to to uh, have been part of the original material. No, no knocks against the screenwriters, right. but like no, he wrote a he wrote a, quite a bit of his own lines for this movie, and uh, <laughs> and the movie's better for it because I feel like yeah, you know, we well, like, you know like uh, what's his name, uh, Alec Guinness contributed right. to some writing. Yeah. Um, and and Carrie Fisher too. Like they they both if yeah you, they both if, punched up the script for have, the Star Wars films. If so. you have like that ability to just command language, yeah. you instinctively know when a line works and when it doesn't. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes a bad movie bad, especially a badly written movie, um, especially like some of the ones that we've seen, yeah. is when actors try to act with the material given and don't try to go beyond it or make it their own. Yeah. But a real professional, like a good actor knows it. You know, when your own voice can't commit to the words given to you. Yeah. And so, you know, when you have to like take those words and make them into something that works with you, or if it's something that's like badly written, you know how to make it sound better. You know. Yeah, I think that's that's something that I go back and forth on personally because, like, I I I feel like there's a part of me that always wants to be like, mm, you should never push rewrites or improving over mm-hmm. what the writer does because more often than not, you know. You're not being paid to write, but right. I think that like when you get to a certain point in your career where like you have that kind of relationship with the director that right. you're able to, you know, as long as again you're not like, you know, trampling all over the bigger story that's trying to be told and yeah, you're that's not the just key. trying to do it to like make you know, just make your own stuff better at the expense of the story overall. I also think that like stage acting is different. Like stage acting, I feel like the the playwright is a much more yeah. a much more integral part of the process. Whereas in screenwriting, it's really like the the director and the producer who who shape and form the story. The screenwriter is really there to give an outline yeah. of what the story is. And and if you're at that point, and if you're in a great movie, like a you know like a Quentin Tarantino movie, a, yeah. a great a, be, a better written film, then obviously you don't want to futz with the dialogue. Especially if the director also wrote the movie. Yeah, that's the other thing, too. Uh, yeah, director's definitely not going to react as kindly to your rewrite suggestions right. if they also wrote the script. But if you're okay. in, like, a bad, campy movie and you, like you said, have that clout where you're known yeah. as this great actor, yeah. then, yeah, just, like, make it your own and make it better because yeah. what else? <laughs> and it was great. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, like, I think the, the, the additions helped to give it some gravitas. It did. Which, which like, I think for a film like... 
like this in a in a kitschy campy universe like this um you you want a villain you you want a villain to have a sense of gravitas right. and to have like a uh, a sense of tragedy to them. Like, a great and, villain can make or break the story for you, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I think that that, like, part of the enjoyment factor of this movie and one of the reasons that I keep coming back to it, again, is even though the movie was critically panned, from the beginning, Langella's performance was the most critically praised thing about this movie. I don't doubt it. And, like, every time I see it, I'm like, there's just little nuggets that I enjoy of, yeah. of his performance. It's great. It's a yeah, great yeah, performance. Definitely. In a shitty movie. Yeah. I would say, like, you know, as far as the action is concerned, um, very, 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 very clunky. Right. Um, I think, like, especially just, like, the first couple scuffles that He-Man gets into, like... You've got him like swinging that big old sword, and it, and it, it feels like a lot of the action, the set pieces that they set up, seem to be in rooms that are a little too crowded for mm. what they're trying to go for. Because right. like that first fight takes place like in a very kind of narrow canyon that's like all on incline, yeah. So it looks like really sort of cumbersome for them to film on, mm-hmm. and. Um, and then, like, the second big fight you have is, like, in the middle of that, like, fenced-off warehouse area where there's, like, boxes everywhere. So, it, it, it like, both of those fights kind of really conveyed this really weird first impression of, like, He-Man's physicality that, like, right. he seemed so sort of, like... He's cramped. Yeah, too cramped to, like, really do anything with the sword. And then also, like, he immediately, like, uses a sword on one dude and then gets the dude's gun. So now he's doing, like, big sword gun in one hand. Sword and gun. Big, Sword in the other hand, so it's not it, very consistent yeah. when, with how, when he uses a gun and when he uses a sword. Yeah, I will he say just, that. Yeah, he just kind of uses a gun for most of the film. Actually, because he like, man, as far as I, I know from well from the cartoon, but also I guess from the action figures, he man doesn't really use a gun. Well, that's the thing is that like it's clear that from the character design, like he's supposed to be this like superhuman beefcake mm-hmm. type dude. Right. So it's supposed to mean that he's supposed to be like just a physically imposing yeah. motherfucker. Right. Like not even that he necessarily has to be particularly fast, but like he has to have like a ton of strength. And, yeah. And, superhuman. Yeah. And he has to be like throwing. He's the most right. powerful person in the universe. Yeah. So but he it, doesn't come across as that ever. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't really ever go that far into like showing like the kind of resistance that he has. Right. Like, he doesn't take a lot of fire or anything yeah. like that. He mainly just kind of like gets into these weird sort of awkward brawls. And and yeah, so that's, yeah, that's where the clunk starts to come in. And the action looks better when it's just shootouts too. Yeah. Like, like, like the physical fights don't land at which, all. Which movie. brings me to the next point, which I think, I think that the most successful action scene in the movie is the record store scene. Because it is, it is pretty much just a shootout. Yeah, it's just it's like very then, western. In yeah, fact. yeah, exactly. I would one hundred percent agree with that. Like that's that's probably yeah the best action sequence. And again, it's ruined by having the evil Lynn as mo- as the mother in the middle of it. Yeah, the pacing of that definitely does get thrown off by that. And I also, I, I know we both reacted to this as well. I am also like really, really <laughs> saddened to see all those instruments just go up in flames and get oh, smashed. Oh God! To the sight of the person crashing into those guitars—that was—that <laughs> was really disheartening. Um, How yeah. many guitar body counts in the movie? <laughs> oh yeah, the real cost. Now, Anthony DeLongis, who played Blade, he initially came into the movie as the fight choreographer. Mm. Uh, Gary Goddard enjoyed his reading of Blade, so he gave him the role 
of Blade, and he trained Dolph Lundgren in the use of the sword. Dolph Lundgren hadn't had any experience prior to this movie. Okay. He also choreographed the sword fight between He-Man and Blade and the climactic duel between He-Man and Skeletor. In fact, DeLongis actually plays Skeletor during the final fight instead oh. of Frank Langella. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the fight between He-Man and Skeletor was a little better at that point. Right. Like, but again, that at that point, they weren't, they weren't having to contend with, like, a weirdly cramped... Like, yeah, they had this huge set. Yeah, they had they had room to move, mm-hmm. so I think that helped them. But like, at, yeah. at least, right? Because they're like, let's this be our final fight. Has everything's leading up to this moment, so at least we get a decent fight out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it was a little better, not by much, but yeah. Now, due to the fifty pound plus weight of his blade suit, Anthony DeLongis has said that when he removed his boots, he would regularly pour out his sweat from them at the end Ooh. of filming every day. I, I don't doubt that. Ugh. That's not comfortable. Doesn't sound it. Frank Langella has gone on record in an interview stating that playing Skeletor was one of his all-time favorite roles. I'm I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so genuinely happy to hear this. When offered the role, Angela said that he didn't even blink. He said, and I quote, I couldn't wait to play him. Langella has cited that his then four-year-old son's love of Skeletor while running around his house yelling He-Man's battle cry, I have the power, as the reason why he chose to play He-Man's arch nemesis. Oh. It's so wholesome. That's so wholesome. That's so amazing. I, don't know, I love. I, don't know, I love this. I don't know if Frank, Frank Langella is like a decent person or not, but just the stories that I was from the research of this made me feel like he's the kind of person that I would love to like work with. You know, yeah. he seems like a decent person. Um, and, and Pons Mar, who's the actor who plays uh, Sarod the reptile guy, he particularly enjoyed working with Frank Langella when he was in costume. Mar was unable to sit, and he had to lean against a special board with a hole cut out of it so he wouldn't fall over because of his tail. (laughs) And Langella made it a point to always stop by to talk with him and ask him if there was anything else that he needed. Aw, that's nice. (laughs) I know. That's good. So wholesome! That is really wholesome. That's sweet. Um, At the time of filming, Dolph Lundgren had limited acting experience, and he spoke with a thick Swedish accent. His only other major role before this, in fact, was um, okay. was Rocky IV, where he played Ivan the Russian. Okay. And he was actually expected this to be his big break into mainstream filmmaking. But the movie, since it was a huge bomb, he was relegated to just playing bit parts and in, in, in campy movies for the rest of his life, pretty much. Dolph Lundgren... He is a martial arts expert. He has a black belt, and he also um, is a bodybuilder. But not a lot of people know this. He also has a master's degree in chemistry. He's a very smart person. Interesting. Um, So when they hired him for this movie, because of his thick accent, they were actually planning to overdub him uh, with Hmm. with an actor that could play, you know, speaks fluent English. But... Uh, Lundgren's contract stipulated that he would at least have three opportunities to redub his lines in post-production. When the film began to run behind schedule, they decided to just go and use natural his natural voice instead. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah, I I think um, he... 
I don't think it was a particularly memorable performance. It wasn't. By, there wasn't a lot that they gave him to do, right? I mean, yeah. Well, this is the other thing, though, too, is that, like, you know, He-Man doesn't have a journey <laughs> right. in this movie he at all. Um, uh, like, yeah, he's pretty much... He's the least uh, interesting he's, character. He's, he's kind of a MacGuffin in and of itself. Yeah. Like, he's pretty much the means by which the villainous plot will be floor- thwarted, and nothing more than that. He's the Dos Ex Machina. A little bit. Literally. Like, he's the yeah, god of like he just, just put him in a room, <laughs> just put him in a room with some guys, and he'll sort it out. Um, so... Yeah, there, there's and and that's again like just to kind of go back to like where I think like you know we see the Marvel films learned their lessons not just from movies like this but from you know many generations worth right. of superhero filmmaking that like you know you you need to have like some sort of a journey of discovery you do. Of, of of like either of self or of the world around mm-hmm. you in order to make for a more compelling you know, hero's journey. And like, there's really no hero's journey in this film at all because He-Man doesn't really go through any sort of change of self. Right. Um, none of his compadres from Eternia go through that. Right. And barely can that be said of the heroes on Earth. Yeah, Julie either. and Kevin. So like, they really, I mean... They, they have the most complete arc, I guess. They, they do It's an emotional of, journey. Uh, yeah, their journey is not satisfying in my book, mm-hmm. and and we'll talk no, about agree. that. I, I think we'll talk we'll talk about Julian Kevin a little more later. But like, yeah, this movie is pretty lacking in any sort of character arc. Maybe with the exception of Skeletor. Skeletor has the like, best Skeletor, arc. Skeletor, Skeletor is the most richly recognized. And Evelyn has and, a great and arc. Eva, yeah, and Evelyn definitely. She's got a lot of incredible presence, and she plays off of uh, Skeletor really, really well. Um, it's clear that there is this like kind of interesting relationship between the two of them, even in just how he kind of scolds her. It's like. Yeah, there's this very interesting sort of chemistry between the two of them that um, that really that that just you know that just gives it that extra mm-hmm. spark. It's kind of like it's it's fun to see like you know yeah how how they interact. So um, yeah. yeah, let's go into the next segment so we can talk about Evil Lynn a little bit more. The next segment's called Boob Tube. Now um, Meg Foster, who played Evil Lynn. Uh, she also had issues with her costume. There's a lot of like costume issues in this movie. Her costume weighed a uh, reported like 45 pounds, and the actress sustained bruises to her groin from the breastplate that she wears throughout the film. Ooh, yikes! Now Foster has said that the breastplate, which constructed of fiberglass, restricted her movements a great deal, which is why you never see Evil Lynn sitting. And she also said that this the discomfort from the costume helped inform her performance as the weight and design of the costume forced her to puff out her chest during every take, thus generating the the character's slinky posture. Okay. And she said that one of the things that she uses for inspiration in her performance is she based her character on uh, Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. Uh, You were talking about the very interesting thing that she gave to it. That's probably why she was giving it that. Um, In the beginning, she's a pantomime villainous, but obviously deeply in love with Skeletor. As the storyline progresses, she gradually comes to realize that he does not truly care for her. And in the end, uh, in the final battle, she abandons him to his fate with, with her withdrawal of her forces and leading to his eventual defeat. Yeah. In Foster's opinion, the character progresses from evildoer to scorned woman to tragic heroine. Hmm. So I do, I do think that it's... Uh, 
it's a pretty decent arc for the movie, actually. Yeah. The villains are more interesting than the heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the thing. They go through their own kind of change and Mm -hmm. their own sort of downfall. Like, it's it's great to see. Like, and yeah, it, it yeah, it, like, uh, yeah, the moment of her withdrawal at the very end of the movie, I thought was like great. Mm-hmm. Like, just, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was really well done. So, and I think, like, even as a, like, as a, as a female character, I think that it's a pretty strong. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, there, there is something of like a self actualization mm-hmm. in, in the way she sort of realizes that, um, you know, there's, there's only so far she's going to personally be able right. to go. So uh, in a way, yeah, it makes for this kind of like rich narrative of like, you know, deciding that you're going to go and find worth on your own. Terms. Right. So, yeah, I think that's really cool. Many viewers have commented on Meg Foster's eerily effective contact lenses, which gave her character a sinister and unearthly air. But actually, she wore no contact lenses in the movie. Oh. Okay. Her eyes naturally have blue-gray irises and tiny pupils, which give her that striking appearance. Yeah. And that's she, why she's... She, yeah, and she has that otherworldly kind of look to her, like in They Live, too, and that I think That's about. why she's she been has... cast in numerous fantasy and sci-fi roles, and she jokes that she appeals to casting directors because she brings her own special effects in for, with her for free. <laughs> funny um now before we talk about the other female characters of the movie I, I will say that even though there is no sex or nudity per se the main beefcake i guess that we get is is he-man's scantily clad body yeah yeah and i mean the, the look the camera kind of kind of <laughs> likes he-man not as much as i was expecting it though certainly not as much as the cartoon right. camera does like he's at the beginning really we not, get yeah. at the beginning we get like close-ups of his pecs and his arms but then we don't really linger that much anymore yeah, there's not that much even um, though he's like really barely wearing anything yeah um yeah I, I i was hoping that the movie would make a little more would make a little more fun out of it out of how uh how scantily clad he right. is or something like that just just a little a little more admiration from the other people of like man what a what a, what a bod what a bod <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but i i the old, i guess like not even when when julie is like cradled in his arms as she like reacts to, <laughs> yeah. to him at all on that level you yeah. know but i guess mattel wanted to keep it keep it clean right speaking of julie this, this was courtney cox's first major big budget motion picture cool that's really exciting mm-hmm. to hear I, mean, she, I thought she did pretty well i think again i i i was um i was a little disappointed by i think just like I don't know. I, it, it was. It was. I was a little put off by, like, just how the the question of her arc seemed to be. Oh, she wants to go off and find her own way, right? Strike and, out and strike out on her own. And you know, she she seemed to be in a relationship that she didn't feel invested right. in mm-hmm. anymore. But then, throughout the journey of the film, in spite of the fact that we don't necessarily see their relationship really enrich in any no. way through the crisis, like yeah, there's no both, real growth. Yeah, they 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 both survive through it together, but like they don't really do that much together to like face the issues at hand. And and we're led to believe that the reason why she wants to leave everything behind, or the reason why she's so emotionally distant is because of the the death of her parents yeah um which is i think why we never get it dealt with on a personal level 
But I think that would have been more compelling if there was like a personal reason also between them, like some sort of chasm that has grown between them. But yeah. apart from the very awkward initial moments with them in the van, they really don't seem like they have any relationship issues for the yeah, rest well, of the movie. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, because I felt like, yeah, there wasn't any clear sign that there were any relationship yeah. issues. And so I was actually, like, kind of interested in, like, this film that, like, that that kind of, like, gave her the space to be like, oh, well, she's not invested in the relationship anymore. And it's nothing to do with how good or bad of a guy he is. Right. It was just like, oh, well, it's just not where she's at anymore. I was like, oh, that's, like, a pretty mature foot for this film to start on. Except that then, of course, at the end, it's just, oh, no, they're going to be together anyway. Right. So I was a little like, I don't know. Is that right? Like, I just, I wasn't sure that I bought into that being their arc. Yeah, like um, I mean, like you said, I feel like everyone who's not a villain in this movie doesn't really have a, an interesting arc to yeah, begin with. Yeah, so I think I think there was there was arc present for the two of them, but like he didn't go through any personal growth. Mm-hmm. She didn't go through much personal growth beyond just like being forced to contend with the trauma of her parents' death by seeing her mother brought back to life briefly. Right. Like, like there was that, but again, that was kind of more just unearthing her trauma fully at her expense to take advantage of her so it doesn't really amount to anything other than just like i also personally don't think that there's a need to be both kevin and julie i think that kevin and julie could have been condensed into one character and julie could have been the character yeah yeah honestly I, i i don't disagree with that like Yeah, it would have made for, you know, less hijinks with the two of them being separated and, you know, interactions with the cop, maybe. But, yeah, I think it would have been a little cleaner if it Mm -hmm. was just, like, one Earthbound character who maybe had, like, a host. Like, like it would have been interesting to have Julie maybe be the musician and to, like, have her maybe have, like, a host of, like, two or three other minor fellow musicians yeah that, like, or even him. charlie the uh, record store or, guy yeah, yeah. he could have been the boyfriend character or, or something like that right like yeah so yeah i think yeah the the stuff with julie and kevin just was just it, it didn't i don't know it didn't that that wasn't the stuff that motivate motivated me right. to stick with it because we were set up but with julie being the human hero of the movie yeah but then when she gets struck down by skeletor she really doesn't do anything else for the rest of the movie yeah yeah, I mean, Kevin figures out how to get them back, but then even he doesn't get to do that much in the final scuffle. Yeah. And again, a big part of that is just that there's this weird, like, indifference of the Eternians towards, like, everything going on, on the planet Earth. Like, they tear up, they tear shit up pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. they're, they don't seem that mad about it, or, right. or that, you know, don't feel that bad about it. They just kind of are, you know, they, they loot and take what they need uh, to get through their mission. And, like, you know, it makes, you know, it's that's fine whatever they're warriors and stuff like that but just like yeah there's yeah the the humans are very much sidetracked for the story and if the heroes of the science fiction world don't have much of an arc then yeah the only place we have to look for an arc is with the villains right yeah uh the other female characters that we have we have tila who's played by chelsea field even though that's a smaller role and uh again like the heroes don't have a lot of arc to begin with i do feel that she was given like a lot of you know cool little moments to to shine as as a female character i don't think that she um was there to be eye candy for example yeah no i mean i think um yeah again it's just like there wasn't that much 
It wasn't that much, that much for her to do. I think um, she she played off, uh, you know, she sort of like played against her father pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that, you know, their banter was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I, I think there could have been a little more room to explore, just like the generational difference yeah, between them, like I, with absolutely. the food thing, especially. Like, I think that... There's a lot of potential for that here, like, because yeah. he's a world-weary soldier who's seen countless wars. Yeah. And she's like an, an up-and-comer, like, you know. But yeah. So I think there could have been more. Right. But, uh, yeah. Um, the other character is the sorceress, played by Christina Pickles. In the cartoon, the sorceress has a much more expanded role. Like I said at the beginning, she's sort of like the Obi-Wan Kenobi character. Yeah. Who offers spiritual guidance to He-Man. In this movie, she doesn't and really she, do and she, anything. Well, and she, like, imbued Skull with the power or something, right? She right? is... She's the re- the physical repre- representation of the power of Skull. Yeah. But in this movie, she's not really given a lot because she's a prisoner the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. But something, Not much there. Right, but something interesting about Christina Pickles, a little trivia here, she went on to play Monica's mom on Friends. Okay, I was wondering why she looked so familiar. She mm-hmm. did look familiar. Um, that's really funny mm-hmm. that she plays Monica's mom. Um, that's a nice little bit of crossover there. Let's go into our last segment. This is called... Uh, that's, that's problematic. problematic. Now, what did you, what struck up with you in this movie? What's uh, what's yeah. problematic? Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I think well, for starters, it's an incredibly white movie. Yeah, like not not a single not a single person of color in sight. Right. Um, and uh, you know, especially considering our He-Man, who is you know meant to be the 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 physical embodiment of perfect masculinity, and he's blonde. For him to be uh, blonde-haired and blue-eyed, <laughs> or I don't know if he's actually blue-eyed, but um, I'm assuming a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. But um, in any case, uh, yeah, um, there is that. Um, I, I guess a little bit like. Yeah, I guess I kind of kept coming back to the relationship story a little bit. Like, I don't necessarily think that the relationship story was problematic. It just kind of, yeah, it just, it, it, it felt like, it felt like it was good enough. Like, I felt like it was good enough for her to decide she wanted to leave for whatever reason. And right. so I felt like there was almost something a little, yeah, regressive about the fact that they were like, no, it turns out they did need each other, but, like, there's no real reason why, mm-hmm. but that she was better off in a relationship than not. And they fixed her um, reason for leaving. She doesn't have to leave because her parents are still there. So. Yeah, exactly. She like, doesn't have to really deal with that anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, that that's... I, I don't know how I feel about the movie's decision to go with, like, resolving... Like the death of a parent, mm-hmm. or like anybody's death, that easily. Yeah, it's pretty glib about like, it. Like, well, because I think that it's like okay, if if you're in like a science fiction world and you have like a character who is of that world who like dies, and then there's some sort of magical or technological way that you're able to bring that person back within the rules of that world, like that's one thing. But I think that like. I don't know. For this film to specifically take a character, like, who's from the Earth situation, and who, like, is has specifically gone through this, you know, has gone through the pain of, like, losing their parents, and then to have their resolution, part of their resolution at the end of the sh- film be like, okay, also, by the way, you're getting your parents back. Right. Like, 
I don't know. There's just there's something about that that I I would have to feel for anybody who like actually goes through a loss mm-hmm. like that, and to like have a movie just kind of be like, oh yeah, you can get it back. Cause right. It's fine. It's like that's everything's not, fixed. That's yeah. Like there's just there's something that so just does not acknowledge that that just completely writes off like the reality of like people who actually have to deal with that kind of personal loss. So yeah, yeah there's something, yeah, there was something a little weird about them going that route. The resolution is really like, weird. Yeah. I've, like, al- I've always thought, I've, I think that the movie just should end in Eternia with them leaving. Cause, cause we started in Eternia. It should end in Eternia. Why do we have to go back to earth? Yeah. And like, because we don't really care about the main characters, any of those earth characters. Yeah. anyway. So yeah. it is really weird. So yeah, I, I found that a little strange. Again, is it problematic? I don't know. Maybe it's, that's it's, maybe that's undercooked, strong, but like, half-baked. but yeah, I think it's it 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 seems it's just like yeah. I think it's like if you, if you're gonna write in a character who has like that kind of trauma, I, I I don't know. I think I think you need you need to give that trauma a little more respect than that. Like, and and that's not necessarily to say that you need to make the whole movie about you know get over it and accept it or something like that. But like you know like that's just that's just them taking the onus off their hands to, like, actually, you know, try to write some sort of, like, you know, some sort of affirmment right. for the character. Yeah. Like, some sort of way for them to to self-actualize. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge. Like, yeah. that's a challenge to try to, 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 you know, to introduce a character who's going through that kind of grief and then to find... Like how they figure out their own path forward. Like that's a challenge. That's especially, a huge challenge. Especially because it undercuts yeah. the theme, I think, of the movie. Because uh, this is one of those movies that where they have a very clear theme message scene, and it, this is kind of going to bring me into my my next point in the problematic here. But it's delivered by uh, Billy Barty as Gwildor. Uh, when he tells Kevin, there's only one of you, there's only one of all of us. Like obviously, like the theme that the movie's trying to incorporate is how we are all important and how we all have to play our part in, in this, you know, the universe, so to speak. Yeah. And and it's not really about destiny. It's about our individuality, but I feel like ending it by giving her parents back kind of undercuts the theme because everything that she, all her growth is for not because she gets a do over. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, like that's a thing, and 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 again, and 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 I don't necessarily want to go as far as to say that we are our trauma because I right. I don't I I wouldn't ne- yeah like I don't necessarily want to go to that length. It's just that like yeah, but it's a I part of it, us. Yeah, but it, it yeah our trauma does become a part of of who we are yeah, and it how define and how we us. and how yeah exactly that's a thing like yeah like that's that's not the message i want to convey right. but but by the same token i do agree with you 100% that like yeah for for them to give her that kind of a do over it it undoes like yeah it does undo undo like the growth mm-hmm. that she went through to mm-hmm. become the person that she right. is and so yeah I, I i do find that odd and puzzling um so we mentioned uh, billy barty uh who played gwildor he um, was a pretty legendary actor in his own right. He mostly played bit roles because there wasn't a lot of like main roles available for little people. Um, but he, but this is one of his most prominent roles, and he was also in Legend, where he played another little person in that. Um, so I wanted to ask you, just from that lens, I know that there's a lot of discrimination 
in Hollywood, but also in the world at large uh, against little people and a lot of ableism. And I wanted to see if you thought uh, his role had any problematic aspects to it. Um, I think that there was something a little off about how the characters kind of treat him in the beginning, like, you know, like when they're first on Eternia and they come across him and there seems to be a fair amount of just like general skepticism Mm -hmm. towards him that seems to be very much about like his size and his appearance. And um, when it's discovered that, like, he was the person who created the key, mm-hmm. the fact that, like, uh, what's her name kind of immediately is, like, you little yeah, worm. Tila, right. Yeah, she, like, immediately just, like, has some nasty things right. to say to him. Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think, I think, like, it's, you know... It's interesting that, like, you know, for his character that they felt compelled to, like, go as far as they did with, like, also giving him a very specific, like, you know, prosthetic design. they hit him. Like, they really make him up to be, to look like, uh, you know, a kind of a, you know, kind of a a, a goblin type character. Yeah, definitely goblinish. Like the the Harry Potter goblin. Yeah, and I think it's like, yeah, I think that's, that's something that, yeah, it's it's not great. I think for yeah, for for your casting practices involving um, you know, little people to 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 specifically just kind of always pigeonhole them into these like creature fantastical roles, creatures, these right. fantastical creature roles is pretty inherently dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I think his you know, his character in the film is, you know, he's not necess- it's not like they, you know, go to the lengths of making him evil or anything like that. But, you know, yeah, he kind of has a pattern of behavior throughout the film that is, like, a little creature-ish. Like, the way he kind of very quickly seeks out the food and, like, I... It's and it's weird too because again, like he's supposed to be an inventor too, right. so he's supposed it's to be smart this, guy. Yeah, he's like the smartest person in yeah. the group. Um, but uh, so yeah, I, I think that for them to also give him those little quirks as far they, as like how he gobbles down the they play him as a clown a lot, like when he was dressed up at, in the human clothes. Yeah, exactly, stuff like that. Like he definitely takes on a bit of a clownish role right. instead of like you know just being the smart guy yeah. and and having his character traits be built around that identity as an inventor right and and like you know they don't necessarily sell him short on that stuff mm-hmm. because like you know he's able to soup up the cadillac right. and stuff like that and um he pretty much fixes up everything that comes to them broken and stuff like that so like he definitely still has those genius traits it's just that then everything that doesn't support that or doesn't doesn't continue to flow from mm-hmm. that it just kind of continues to you know be more played for laughs and 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 he just he kind of does something silly and everybody's like oh everyone does laugh yeah and so it's they don't they don't laugh with him i have the i get get the idea that's the thing like yeah it it definitely comes off as like they're all like oh how how precocious you are and like that's that's not that's not great for a a a deeper acknowledging of of his humanity Mm -hmm. so and every time he shows up a character says what the hell is that yeah yeah so not 
not great. Mm-hmm. Not great. Yeah, it could have been a lot worse. I agree with you, but because uh, I do think the the char- I, of the heroes, Gwildor is one of the more interesting characters to me. And even though he gets a lot of hatred because he's not Orko, like they kind of replaced him. But I do think that he in this movie, I enjoy Billy Barty's performance in the movie. Yeah, but I agree- he has a lot of fun with it, and he right. yeah, he definitely yeah he definitely brings a lot of charm and right. and charisma to it. But for, I agree sure. with you that it's not again like a lot of things in this movie. It's just like really half baked, and and there are some very problematic ways that. I can yeah. kind of get it from the villains, but when the heroes also treat him that way, I'm like, come on, dude. Like, you have yeah. to respect. Yeah, some of, yes, just like some of those, some of those, like, elven tropes that mm-hmm. they kind of push on him, and those, like, goblin tropes that right. they push on him. That's just like, you know, that's just, that continues to kind of, you know, yeah, that just, that, that, yeah, that, that sort of just kind of codes him in a way that continues to sort of undermine, undermine the, the kind of status that he's able to share with the rest of the right. team. You know what I mean? Like, there's one more point that I want to bring up to this section before we wrap up. Uh, before I do that, I, uh, there's a little story here. So Mattel, the toy company that produced the original He-Man toys, the re- they ran a contest where the winner would get a role in the Masters of the Universe movie. Okay. Uh, the production was under a great deal of pressure to finish in time. In fact, they were running out of money by the end of it, and Canon was forcing them to rush it. They they decided to close down like the set three days before filming and they had to find other means to finish, you know, stuff like that. Um, so when finally they found a winner for this contest, director G- Gary Goddard had to squeeze him into the shot. And uh, the winner was a, a, a kid named Richard Sponder, who is credited in the credits as Pig Boy. And he's in the very last scene when um, Skeletor comes back from Earth He's the kid that ha- that hands Skeletor his staff. He's dressed in a little pig suit. Oh, okay. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, yeah, I noticed. I noticed the person handing him his staff when he came back. So yeah. he just has like that quick, like little, little pig, little boy. pig thing. Yeah. Now, the reason why I wanted to segue that into my next one. This is kind of like an awkward segue because it has nothing to do with Richard Sponder, who, for all intents and purposes, lived a great life after that. But there is something problematic, I think, about having children in this movie because Gary Goddard was one of those filmmakers who, in during the Me Too movement, a lot of awful things came out about him. Okay. Um, him and Brian Singer, who is another director, he directed a lot of the X-Men movies, he directed Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. They both came under fire uh, when it was uh, brought out that actor Michael Egan the uh, Third, he he accused both of them of sexually assaulting him when he was a minor, and said that they had videotaped the assaults. Now Egan withdrew his lawsuit against Goddard specifically in 2014, and he also def- he re- dismissed his lawsuits uh, against Brian Singer uh, a little while after that, but. Actor Anthony Edwards, who we know from Top Gun and ER, he's also come out and said that uh, Goddard had an inappropriate relationship with him starting from when he was 12 years old. So my question is, this is more broader, like outside of the world of the film, you know, because obviously these are things that we have to deal with once these allegations come out is how do we digest the art that these people have created 
when you know we find out that they're not the most morally upstanding characters themselves yeah. and how do we view you know like any type of like wholesome messaging that this movie might have been trying to convey through that lens does it affect it at all like does learning that how does learning that paint the experience of this movie for you um that's that's a good question um i mean i think the the initial thing that comes to mind uh in in sort of hearing that is that you know it it clearly sounds like you know the production was kind of in a dubious state as far as like just you know the fact that they were under pressure to finish on time mm. they seemed to be running out of money and then on top of that they had this contest and then the winner of the contest is a kid who they mm. had to like work into the into the shot so so part of what that makes me wonder is well okay if this whole thing was kind of like thrown together like was there still work done to make sure that like when they brought in the kid for the shoot that like you know that they made sure that you know he had you know that he had staff to like tend right. to him yeah. and to like make sure that he was safe during everything and uh, all that stuff. Like, so that's that's like the initial thing that comes to my mind is just because it sounds like if they were kind of you know rushing to finish this thing, then like yeah. who knows if like you know the due diligence of just making right. sure that the set was a safe location for him right. worked. And we obviously don't know like anything specifically mm-hmm. one way or the other. Um, I think, like, for that broader question of... For that broader question of how one regards the art, I think uh, that's something that I continue to personally struggle with. I struggle with it, too. Um, and I, not just, not just like, in modern times, not just with, like, movies. Like, for example, you know, I, I, I know for a fact that Harvey Weinstein is a monster... But yeah. do I? Does that mean that I don't watch Pulp Fiction? That I don't watch Shakespeare in Love? Like that? Those are things that I grapple with. But not just in the context of like modern art. Yeah, you know when you learn things, and especially where we are as a society, how do you deal with the art that's been created in years past, which was very much exclusive yeah it wasn't inclusive it was uh, you know it was mostly white male perspective yeah and a lot of those white men who were artists definitely did atrocious things yeah i think that ultimately it is a personal decision that everybody will make as Mm -hmm. far as like what you do with that information Mm -hmm. i think that we live in we live in a a period of time where we have unparalleled access to information right. unlike any other time before. Um, so I think that it's certainly on everybody to have like a better understanding of like, you know, who, who is behind the work of the works of art that you consume. Um, I think that, I think that certainly um, everybody can make their own decisions about whether they want to further support the art of people who commit crimes like this Mm -hmm. going forward, whether that means they're not going to show up to the box office when they make a new film or whether they produce a new film or are starring in a new film. Um, I think it's on them to decide whether they want to support film studios that will continue to employ these artists or not. Um, and, and so I think that that will just continue to be your own personal journey. I think that like, 
you know, art is always a product of its time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when it comes to like problematic messaging of works of art, um, you know, you have, you have to be on yourself to make sure that you're, you're seeing what that messaging is and Mm -hmm. understanding why it was born of the context of, of of the context of its times. And like, I think that's a big part of what we try to do on this podcast as well, that like we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of pieces of work that are very much of specific time periods. And, and one of the things that I'm always trying to do when, whenever we're having these conversations is that I'm trying to both talk is that we we want to be able to both speak to why those things are problematic now but also we want to speak to why they aren't just as problematic back in the time they were made too because it's important to have that understanding if we're going to be able to continue to improve as a society going forward absolutely and if we want to continue to like see the kind of art that is more reflective of our values like going forward is to kind of just have that better understanding of how art gets produced Mm -hmm. um both in like less if you want to say enlightened times right. and now like that's that's that all goes into that all goes into you know seeing a path forward to you know having art that's made by people whose work we can support Absolutely. and whose values we can support um to kind of tie it back to to the movie um like we were saying with Julie's arc how having giving her a do over at the end kind of undercuts her growth I feel the same way about the way that we produce art a lot of times it, because I'm not one of those people who who will say burn the canon. I understand that the canon is problematic and there are, you know, you can everyone has their own canon that you can pick and choose from to make, you know, your own this is the, the like the basis of of the influences that I have in my life as an artist. Yeah. Um but I don't think that we should disregard it outright. What I do think is now that we know better and now that we've grown, yeah. let's do better. Yeah. And, and when we get like, you know, the, like you said, the movie studios that keep hiring these people that don't deal with these monsters, that keep perpetuating the cycle that's what I have a problem with. I think when, when we live in a time right now of incredible access to information, we have so much talent out there and people who are being given voices more than ever before, not just white men, women, people of color. Let's hear that perspective. And not to say that those people don't come with problematic baggage of their own because we're all humans. We all do fucked up shit. Yeah. But take it on a case by case basis and if you if you find out that someone does something shitty, cut off ties with them, don't work with them. But now that we know better, do better. Yeah, I I definitely think that yeah, ultimately there I think that that you're going you're going to get further on like when it when it comes to like deciding whose work you will or won't support um yeah it it does kind of, at the end of the day the studios are where that the, right. that money and that power is and so 
you have to make sure that when you're advocating for art that reflects, you know, our, our better values, yeah. that you, you want to make sure that those, those studios that are making the art, that are investing these, you know, millions upon millions of dollars mm -hmm. into these projects, they're the ones that have to understand what they have to lose if they're going to employ people who will behave that Hold way. Hold them accountable. And so, so the, yeah, those like, because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, Harvey, like you can't, you can't take like Harvey Weinstein's like a abysmal behavior, like in a vacuum, right. like Harvey Weinstein is a clear example of an entire system. Right. That propped him up and 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 gave him the resources to to continue to Correct. do that kind of stuff. Correct. So so it like so so yeah. I think it's it at the end of the day, like it it is much more about those systems of power right. than it is about individuals. And certainly, yes, you want to hold individuals accountable, and you should hold individuals accountable. But you also have to take that further step into the systems that were in place that allowed them to 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 victimize people yeah, smash, like that. Smash so. down those systems so, yeah, yeah. and create an environment of diversity and inclusivity where we can be morally judicious of each other. Yeah. Um, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's uh, wrap up. Uh, let's come down to our final thoughts here. Now, uh, Goddard came up with the idea for the post-credits sequence of having <laughs> Skeletor in a bottomless pit filled with bubbling red water. Um, after filming the final battle with He-Man, he took one extra day and told Frank Langella his idea. Frank Langella approved. He loved it. So they prepared the vat, put him in there, and they, we get Skeletor saying, I'll be back. <laughs> now, um, I'll ask you about what you felt about that as a post credit sequence here in a second, but I will give you a little bit of context. When this movie was in production, there was a script for a sequel being prepared. They, okay. They were fully ready to go into a sequel, which is why they had the lead-in for a sequel at the end. Um, but the problem is that the movie became a critical and commercial failure. So the movie was never made. However, that script was still produced by Canon. The film, which was supposed to feature She-Ra, was completely like redone. They changed the characters and everything. They just kept the basic concept of it. And it became a movie called Cyborg, which was released in 1989. So hmm. if you watch Cyborg... Uh, it won't be a direct sequel to Masters of the Universe, but you'll notice a lot of similar elements. Interesting. That's fascinating. Um, that the for, movie lives on. Right. <laughs> First of all, what did you think about the uh, post credit sequence? <laughs> well, I mean, it's like a tiny little morsel. And the thing is, like, uh, as, as, you know, as we saw by the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like, some of those post credit sequences, not to mention there are also, like, mid-credit sequences yeah, on top so of that. Yeah, so many like, of they, them. They just became like, like it, it just became, it became common law almost that like right. you, you have to stick through to the end because there is content at the end of the closing credits, which I think is like, 
not such a bad thing because like you know you you should stick around for the credits right um if if you can Give if you, if you those, don't have something pressing the little like, people are the people who are responsible for making the movie yeah you know? everyone everyone who is responsible for making the movie um so yeah i think including stuff at the end that rewards that is nice um i think uh you know it it made me a little sad to know that they didn't have a sequel to yeah. go forward to um but I, I yeah I I mean yeah there's not much to it but like yeah I think that it it's completely fitting with the the whole ethos of just like you know pulpy campy optimistic sci-fi mm-hmm. adventures like yes of course the villain is never actually dead yeah. and so like yeah why not just lean into it and show him popping out with a little I'll be back he has like, to be I back for the next episode you know yeah. it's always yeah, it's, it, that's the thing is it's all episodic yeah it's, um, it's yeah. always like good versus evil you can't just have one without the other yeah so um, what did you think about this movie final thoughts uh, Masters of the Universe is it a bad movie a so-so movie good movie great movie what do you think? Uh, I would say uh, I'd, I'd honestly keep it in the so-so. Mm-hmm. I think um, it, you know, there are things that I enjoyed about it. Um, certainly, um, certainly, it has elevating moments, especially when it came to uh, the villain camp. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all pretty clunky, and uh, you know, there there isn't actually necessarily that rich of a story being told. There really the isn't. Like, there's just, there's not a compelling hero's journey. Um, the film itself doesn't do, like, even though, like, the stuff involving the villains and all the subtext between them, like, all that stuff is very rich, but it's not, it doesn't, but it doesn't necessarily amount to, like, a whole story being right. told anyway. So, and, and... So I think that, like, if there was a full story being told that all of that additional richness then, like, added to, like, that, that would have, that would have possibly been enough to bump this up into, like, a decent, into a decent to good Mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, it's just a so-so film that, you know, but we'll probably bear a rewatch here and there for Frank Langella's work, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think that even saying so-so is a win for this movie, and I agree with you. I think that it's so-so because as we've discussed at length in this podcast, this really isn't a good movie. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) So it it should be in the bad movie category like like the Death Stalkers and the Warrior Sorcerers. By rights, it should be bad. But there are so many like these individual elements that are so good that it bumps it up to so-so. And like we said, Frank Langella's performance is just legendary, honestly. I feel like if the if the movie was like half better, then we would remember it more because mm-hmm. his performance bears discussion. That's how good it is. Yeah. And again, I feel like if you uh, just take Frank Langella out of it, if you if someone act, asks you how do you act, show him this movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. how you fucking act. That's how you do it. I agree. Well, that brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Thank you for watching Masters of the Universe with me, Ned. Of course. Happy to do it. Uh, We hope that you join me again next time for another schlocky masterpiece. And we hope that you guys out there join us again, too. Until then, we don't say goodbye. We say good journey. Good journey. So good journey. Now go watch some movies. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. 
Just you guys always bring the very best. 